What a blessing it is to bring the word this morning. In the midst of my travels, I often hear mission and church leaders pose the following question. Why, after 2,000 years since Christ gave the Great Commission, is it yet unfulfilled? It's a good question. Why, after 2,000 years since the giving of the Great Commission by Christ, is it yet unfulfilled? Why do so many nations still wait for the gospel today? Sitting in darkness, cut off from the light of the gospel. When limitless spiritual resources have been given to the church in Christ, that's a good question. When you consider the abundance, the unbelievable abundance of physical and human resources that God has given to the church, that's a good question. When you consider that the Great Commission was, after all, the marching order of Jesus Christ to the church, that's a good question. There is even a missions book out there entitled, Why the World Still Waits. It's one man's attempt to answer that question. I've discovered that people's answers to this question vary widely. Many say the world still waits because of a lack of partnership. They say that churches and ministries are so busy building their own little kingdoms instead of working together to advance God's. Others still say that it's a methodology problem. They say that our methods are out of touch with current and global realities. Still others will say that there's a lack of strategic focus. That's why the world is still waiting. Others claim that the world still waits because of an inequitable distribution of Christian resources. Several years ago, while speaking at a missions conference, a national conference in Las Vegas, one of the speakers said with great force as he pounded the pulpit that it was a resource problem. It was his conviction that if churches in the first world would simply share a bit of their resources with churches in developing countries where most of the unreached people live, then the task would get finished. The problem with all of these answers is that none of them deal with core issues. They merely surface the symptoms of why the world still waits. Ultimately, I believe that the reason the world still waits is not pragmatic. It is not specifically a resource or a funding issue or a strategy issue. In the end, it's not even about our struggle to meaningfully partner with others in the body of Christ. Is it possible that 6,000 nations, or should I say 6,000 people groups, distinct ethno-linguistic grouping, 6,000 of them, numbering together over 2 billion souls, are still waiting to hear about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because those who name him are not convinced that he's all that great? Could it be that for many people who say they're a follower of Christ, Jesus is little more than a religious side interest, useful for escaping hell, but little else? I wonder, do we, and when I say we, I mean me, Do we have an all-consuming passion to know Jesus Christ in the fullness of his perfections? 
and to enjoy him more than we enjoy anything in this world, anyone in this world, any accomplishment in this entire world. Maybe the world still waits because we are not yet burnt up with fervent desire to know our Savior King. John Piper puts it this way, we do not commend what we do not cherish. That makes sense, doesn't it? If we are not ravished by all that God is for us in Christ, if we are not in awe of the cross, if we are not stunned by the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, how will we ever rouse the type of fervent heat and energy necessary to make disciples of all the nations? If we don't think he's great, how can we go to the nations and say, he's greatly to be praised? Friends, to fulfill the Great Commission, we need solid methodologies. We need sound strategies that are in touch with global realities. We definitely need to partner better. We need to understand the complexities of planting churches among the world's unreached and least reached peoples. It's not easy work. In short, to be effective in missions, we need an abundance of mission skill and knowledge. And make no mistake, without those things, our ministries will be hindered. But there is a necessity to know God. And it's more than a demand. It's a requirement. Because if we do not know God in Christ, we don't have a ministry. Not knowing God destroys ministry. If we would become effective emissaries of God, that inflamed the world for his glory, then folks, first, you and I must burn. We must be ignited. I've entitled this message, Let Worship Be the Fuel for Missions Flame. And we're going to camp out this morning in Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 8. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to unpack it this morning, and we're going to see if we can figure out what it was that set the prophet ablaze to not only know Christ, but to make Christ known. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. The first thing we see is a crisis. Verses 1 through 4. Isaiah's commission into ministry began with a lofty vision of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, When King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He had what A.W. Tozer called a crisis of encounter. Let me define crisis for you. A decisive point or situation. You see, this was Isaiah's definitive life experience. Everything is changing for the prophet at this moment. This vision is going to change his life trajectory. Nothing will be the same. The word he uses for Lord is emphatic. It's the Hebrew word Adonai. And it means the supreme Lord of all who is over all. He had never seen this before. You might say that this was majestic royalty and holiness beyond all imagination. And it was the first time he had seen God in this way. Now, I said that this was actually a vision of Jesus Christ. I've said that several times. This is what theologians call a Christophany, which is simply an Old Testament appearance of the uncreated Christ. And how do I know this is a Christophany? Well, if you have the time, and I recommend that you take the time, it's pretty interesting. Read John chapter 12, specifically verses 39 through 41. If you read that passage, what you'll discover is that Isaiah here in chapter 6 was beholding the glory of the only begotten Son. He was beholding Christ. Now it says that Isaiah didn't see Jesus until Uzziah died. Why is this? A lot of commentators have given their thoughts, and I'm not exactly sure, but it stands to reason that he didn't see Jesus until Uzziah died because his eyes were on Uzziah instead of being on God. If you consider Judah at this time, it was a time of great prosperity. Uzziah had ushered in a time of prosperity to his people. Life was plentiful and things were good. And Uzziah, though, at the end of his life, turned out to be a pretty rotten king. In the beginning, he was a pretty great king. And so maybe even the prophet had lost his focus, or maybe he never had his focus. Perhaps his eyes were on the king instead of being on the king of kings. Maybe he was consumed with an earthly kingdom under this time of prosperity instead of being focused on a spiritual heavenly kingdom. Some commentators even think that he may have thought Uzziah to be the promised one at this point. He's the one. He's going to set all things right. Chuck Swindoll wrote these words, God reserves the discovery of the depth of himself to those whose hearts are completely his. God reserves the discovery of the depth of himself to those whose hearts are completely his. I think that up to this point in Isaiah's life, his heart may have been fragmented. He did not have a single heart given to the Lord. There was compartments perhaps. He had a place in his heart for God and the things of God, but God had not yet taken hold of this man's life. You see, it's entirely possible 
to become familiar with the good things that God has created and to even have a place in your heart for him while never having been introduced to the presence of the uncreated. Let me say that again because it's very important. It's entirely possible to be familiar with the good things God has created and yet never have been introduced to the presence of the uncreated. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says these words, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hebrews 12, 14, a parallel passage. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If we want our lives to count for the sake of God's global purpose and his kingdom, then we need a sharp and stunning encounter with Christ. We've got to see him with the eyes of our heart. But we'll never see him as he really is until our hearts are his alone, until he is enthroned within us. And this brings up a point of application for everybody. Do we have any Uzziahs in our lives? Small kings that need to be dethroned. Counterfeit kings that need to be deposed. A Uzziah might be a person. It can be a thing or a habit or a possession or a relationship. It could be bitterness or unforgiveness. I've discovered that the ministry itself can even be a Uzziah, maybe as it was for Isaiah. Is there anything in your life that's competing for Christ's attention and Christ's affection? Is there anything that's clouding your vision of him? If so, it's deceiving you by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let God remove it so that you can look upon Christ clearly. This is where effective ministry begins. Let me share something I've learned about Uzziah's. Have you ever noticed that Uzziah's, and for the sake of the message, that is those things in our life that compete for God's attention, those things that compete for his love and affection, they gain power over us by convincing us that they can make us happier than God can. Think about this. As someone who desires to follow Christ, we don't enthrone Uzziah's because we have to or because we're obligated to. We allow these tyrants to take their place on the throne of our hearts because we're convinced that they can make us more satisfied than God. They can make us happier than God. And so here's the point of application. If we would burn bright for the global purposes of God, then we must rebel against Uzziah's coup. We have to allow those counterfeit monarchs and kings to be removed. If we want to burn bright for the glory of God, then spiritually speaking, the Uzziah's in our life must perish. I want you to notice some very unusual creatures that attend this crisis of encounter. They're called seraphim. It says, above his throne stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they cover their face, with two they cover their feet, and with two they fly. Seraphim is translated holy burners or holy flames. I'm pretty sure this is the only place in scripture we see them. I wish we knew more about them. Now, I don't want you to mistake these seraphim as cute 
chubby little cherubs that we see on the Valentine's Day greeting cards. I've tried to picture them in my mind's eye because they're, they're just so fantastic. They're wonderful. They're, they're terrible. They have six wings. They're six-winged angels. They're amazing, terrible, celestial beings. And they circle Christ in grand array and they require that his servants be cleansed before they are commissioned. They are made to celebrate the holiness of God. Notice their wings. There's a big lesson to be learned in their wings, I think. Four wings are given exclusively for reverence and worship. Symbolized by the covering of the face and the covering of the feet. These are creatures. That is, God made them. They're not uncreated. They were made and yet they're holy. They've never sinned like we have. And even they cannot look upon Christ without veiling their eyes. So terrible is his holiness. Remember Moses' encounter at the burning bush? He had a crisis of encounter. He couldn't look upon the presence of God. And not only that, he had to remove his sandals. And in like fashion, these seraphim, with two of their wings, cover their faces, and with two they cover their feet. And then they have two wings designed for service. It says they fly with these. And the implication is that these are intended to do the Lord's will or his work. Take careful note here that more emphasis is given to worship than to service. Two-thirds emphasis on worship. One-thirds emphasis on service. Now service unto God, is an essential outgrowth of worship. In fact, service rightly performed is worship, but I believe what's being emphasized here is that nothing can take the place of pure, unspoiled fellowship. We were made to worship. Have you ever noticed that there is a pressure in life and in ministry, and it's especially prevalent for those in ministry, This pressure is sometimes relentless, almost irresistible to take God for granted and give ourselves to other things that seem to be more urgent, more practical, more strategic at the time. You ever done that? You take God for granted and you give yourselves to these other things and then you rationalize them because you're doing them for God. And yet there's no fellowship. There's no intimacy. There's no relationship when this happens our very efforts to serve God actually end up marginalizing him I think there's a profound lesson for us to learn in the anatomy of these creatures God made us to worship him pastor John Piper says worship is the fuel and goal of missions missions begins and ends in worship where zeal for worship is weak Zeal for missions will be weak. Where zeal for worship is weak, zeal for missions will be weak. Isaiah was getting stirred up to make much of Jesus by seeing much of Jesus. That's how God's going to stir us up to be men and women that proclaim the gospel. We're going to see much of Christ. And then we will seek to make much of Christ. The seraphim have a cry. Holy, holy, holy is their cry. It says one cries to another in a loud voice. It's so very loud that the very foundations 
and thresholds of heaven begin to shake and the house is filled with smoke. Now, I believe this holy, holy, holy is an ecstatic ascription. It's emphatic. They are not stuttering. They repeat themselves for emphasis sake. Here's the point. One holy is insufficient. Two holies is insufficient. Three holies is insufficient. But they repeat themselves to emphasize that his holiness is beyond imagining, beyond description. There are some Bible scholars that believe in this passage, one holy is given to the Father, one to the Son, and one to the Spirit. And that may be true. I don't think we'll know the exact um, implication until we get to heaven. But I think that this is not one for the Father, one for the Son, one for the Spirit. I think this is an ancient literary device known as the trisagion. It's the ancient equivalent of bold face type. They're trying to make this stand out. How do you define the holiness of God? Have you ever attempted this? Well, because definitions depend on similarities, we look for like things or similar things to help us define something. You want to define one object or one thing, you look for something that's similar or like it in order to describe the one you're trying to define. So when we attempt to define the holiness of God, we say things like this, pure, otherworldly, unspoiled. And if you have an unusually big vocabulary, like one theologian does, here's how you might define the holiness of God. He says, altogether different, absolute unique, and uncreated moral perfection. Altogether different, like nothing we've ever seen before. Absolute unique. He stands alone. He's in a class all by himself. Uncreated moral perfection. He's always been. He never had a point where he was made. He's uncreated and he's morally perfect. It's a pretty good definition. But here's the problem. Even our very best attempts to define the holiness of Jesus are dingy gray at best. Because definitions depend on comparisons. So who or what do you compare Jesus to? Well, later on in Isaiah, God asked the question. Isaiah 42, I believe. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. He says, so you want to try and define me? You want to compare me to someone? And then his response Lift your eyes to the heavens. Who created all these? Speaking of the stars. He who calls out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. He doesn't give a definition, but he says, you want to try and define me. You want to compare me to someone? Go outside. Look at the sky on a starry night without any light pollution and just start counting. Every one of those stars is vastly larger than your sun. I made every single one, billions upon billions upon billions. And not only do I know that make them, I know them by name. I tend them like sheep. 
That's who I am. Story has it that when Leonardo da Vinci was painting the Last Supper in the Sistine Chapel, that he painted the entire scene, the table, the disciples, but he paused when it came time to paint the face of the Savior. And he would come back day after day, frustrated. He felt he couldn't attempt it. He was frustrated. Finally, one day, he threw his hands up in desperation and story goes like this. They said that he screamed out, it's no use. I can't paint him. He painted a face, but he was never satisfied with the outcome. That's what it's like trying to describe the holiness of God. And that's why I believe that it is his only attribute that he raises to the third power in scripture. This is why I believe this is the Trisagion. It's the only attribute of God that you see raised to the third power. That may seem unimportant to you, but does God do anything willy-nilly, haphazardly? He must be telling us something fantastically important about his holiness to raise it alone to the third power of all his attributes. That's something that's worth meditating on. Notice their focus. They say the whole earth, in verse 3, is full of his glory. So he's holy, holy beyond description, otherworldly, and the whole earth is full of his glory. John Piper says the glory of God is the radiance of his holiness. In other words, the glory of God is seen when the holiness of God goes public. What's his glory? It's his holiness on display. And according to Habakkuk, we know that one day his glory will fill the earth the way the waters cover the sea. And isn't that what the Great Commission is all about? It's about the gospel of Christ proclaimed among every nation, tribe, and tongue until there's a worshiping, witnessing, growing church in every people group so that the glory of God covers the earth the way the waters cover the sea and the cry of the seraphim anticipates this event because it hasn't happened yet. But it will. The Hebrew word for glory is the word kabod, and it means to make weighty or heavy. So the weightiness of God's holiness is actually closing in on Isaiah and reducing him to his proper size. He's getting crushed under the weight of God's presence. And the impact is disturbing. It's meant to stun us and to silence us and to destroy our complacencies about Christ. It says that the foundations of the threshold shook and the house was filled with smoke at the voice of he who called out. When Christ shows up, he shakes things up. There was a survey of ex-church members and it revealed that the main reason they stopped going to church was they thought it was boring. Apparently, they do not find worship a thrilling and moving experience. And yet, here in the presence of the Almighty, these inanimate, inert objects, they're lifeless. They have the good sense to tremble and to shake before Him. The reason that so many people find worship boring is because God isn't present at many churches. 
Now, I know he's omnipresent, so he's everywhere at once. I get that. Don't understand it, but I get it. I know what's happening. What I mean when I say he's not present in churches is that there is not a tangible awareness of his greatness. There is no awe or reverence and he is unwittingly belittled. He's neglected and he doesn't come through for who he is. And No one's going to worship a cheap God. When the sermons are entitled Seven Steps to Success or Become a Better You or How to Get Along with All the People Around You, God does not come through for who he is. When preaching is cheap and frivolous, I believe people eventually become cold and indifferent about worshiping Christ. Yeah, you can fill a stadium and a church with a talent show, but there will be no transformation. People won't be touched. They won't be moved. Lives will not be changed. A.W. Tozer said, a true encounter with God will be permanent and life-changing. The experience may be brief, but the results will be evident in the life of the person touched as long as he or she lives. So if we want to be effective in this kingdom calling of spreading the gospel to all nations, it begins with crisis. Isaiah now responds with confession. Verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Having beheld the glory of Christ, he pronounces judgment upon himself. And he says, I am lost, or one translation says ruined, another one says undone, and it actually means to be destroyed or made silent. His language suffered under the effort to express what he was witnessing. You might say that God left him speechless. In the presence of uncreated beauty, he had little to say. Friends, if there ever was a together type of person, it was Isaiah ben Amos. He was the religious man. The man who spoke the oracles of God, yet here in the presence of God, he's coming apart at the seams. R.C. Sproul says that Isaiah was experiencing personal disintegration. He's unraveling. His self-esteem and self-worth are not being exalted, they're being shattered. I don't get the idea, idea that Isaiah is skipping around, do you? He's not singing a happy song at this point. He's in pain. He's filled with fearful trembling and self-loathing. Now, we don't know all that he's thinking, but based upon his choice of words, woe is me, that's a judgment. He probably wanted the temple to cave in on him at this point. Anything to get out from underneath the beam of Christ's holy gaze. Anything to get out from underneath that. Woe is me is literally, I'm in despair. He pronounces judgment upon himself. Now, it was one thing for prophets to pronounce judgment on others. But it was altogether different for them to pronounce judgment upon themselves. He knew what this meant. What he was saying was, I am unworthy. I'm destroyed. I'm worthy of destruction. 
Seeing the uncreated holiness of Christ made him conscious of his sin in a whole new way. It was a vision of Jesus that gave him an accurate vision of himself. And in the end, this moved him to silence. And now aware of God's holiness, he confesses his sin. And not only his own iniquity, but also the iniquity of his people. Several years ago, studying this passage, something jumped out at me that I had never seen before. And I want to share it with you by asking you a question. I think it's very profound. What was it that absolutely wounded this prophet to the core? What exactly was it that produced this heart-wrenching, heart-rending sorrow and conviction over sin? Look at the context here. There are no threats of, of judgment. No mention of the terrible consequences of sin as real as they are. There's no mention of hell, sulfur, No, Isaiah was broken by seeing the splendor of God's holiness. Isaiah was being transformed by beauty. Sometimes I'm sorry over my sin because I fear the consequences of disobedience. I know you all relate. Or you're sorry over sin because you got found out and now they know the truth about you. But that's not what's happening here. This is repentance. It's the result of seeing God's holiness and Isaiah realizing that God's holiness was what his soul had longed for. Only Isaiah had been looking elsewhere. It was the realization that he was created for this, but he had been lured away. He had been settling for so much less. Isaiah suddenly saw sin not only as something that damages man, but worse, something that demeans the preciousness of God. Here's a point of application. My friends, how can we be sorrow, sorrowful excuse me, about not having holiness if we don't prize holiness? How can we weep and cry and mourn and wail about not being holy if we don't think holiness is something valuable and precious? Do you weep over not having the things that you could care less about? So what's happening here is God is leading Isaiah to repentance by putting the beauty of his son on display. You gotta love this about God. He doesn't stick out his finger of judgment, which he could and say, you little worm. You're supposed to be a prophet. He says, Isaiah, you've been missing it. Come close. And he pulls back the veil. And he shows him beauty and holiness. And it wrecks Isaiah. Leads him to repentance. Is it not his loving kindness that brings us to our knees? I don't know about you, but in my own life, I have never known lasting victory over sin to come merely from a fear of sin's consequences. What frees us from bondage 
to the flesh and to sin is the power of beauty, the power of a superior pleasure. When our longings for beauty are met in Christ, the offerings of the world no longer entice. Isaiah gives a 1 John 1, 9 response here. Isaiah says, I'm guilty. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess in 1 John 1, 9 means to agree. In other words, no more excuses, God. I agree with you about Jesus and I agree with you about my sinful condition. It's been said that the man who thinks he has something to offer God save his broken life is not fit for service. There are many of us who want to be mighty for God, mighty in ministry, but first there must be an undoing, there must be an unraveling, there must be a crisis of encounter that leads us to confession. Now, if the story ended here, we would be in some deep eternal trouble, folks, but not only is our God infinitely holy, he's infinitely merciful. In verses six and seven, we see a cleansing. Then, One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. His confession led to an immediate cleansing. And I believe at this point, though the passage doesn't reference this, I believe his fearful trembling is now being turned to joyful trembling. Because it says that his guilt was removed. Not only did God remove his sin, but the ESV and the NIV say his guilt was taken away. The condemnation was taken away. So yes, he knew he was worthy of God's judgment, but now he's forgiven. And this seraphim says, there's no guilt. You're free. This is so important for effective missions work, effective ministry work. Ministry is not penance. Some people get involved in ministry to pay God back, so to speak, or to try and earn his favor or to try and work off a guilty conscience and they end up misrepresenting the gospel of grace. The best ministers of the gospel are those who are in disbelief that they're completely forgiven, not because of something they've done or haven't done, but because of something that was done outside of them without any help from them before they were ever even born. Something done on their behalf. People who know that there was a substitution and they're like, oh my goodness, I I can't believe this. Forgiven. I'm righteous. He's touched with a coal, a hot, fiery coal. This is a wounding that brings healing. God often describes himself in this metaphor of fire. Again, it falls short, but it's one of those mechanisms he uses to try and describe who he is. Well, this hurts the prophet, no doubt. Though this is happening in the spiritual realm, it's incredibly painful. Soul work, I believe, is harder than the physical work. The most painful work is soul work. And that's what's happening here. There must have been a searing of his lips, a burning. But it was a burning that brought healing. I really love the Chronicles of Narnia. In fact, I I think I love it more now than when I was a kid. Maybe some of you relate to that. I love 
the figure of Aslan. And C.S. Lewis did a great job. The, the last movie installment of the Chronicles, the Don Treader, there's a scene that has stood out in my mind. It's when Eustace, the Pevensey's cousin, if you haven't seen the movie, I'll try and fill you in a little bit here. If you haven't read the books, he's a brat. He's obnoxious. He's selfish, sinful, cares only of himself, self-consumed. And the Pevensey's are just really frustrated by him. And, and on this particular journey and adventure, he wanders into a um, place that's cursed and he touches a treasure of gold and he's transformed into a dragon, which isn't a blessing, it's a curse. He hates it. And Aslan uses this to get Eustace's attention to change the boy. And he has an encounter, a crisis of encounter, if you will, Eustace does with Aslan. First time he's laid eyes on him. He's heard about him from the Pevensies, but now he sees him. And Aslan takes his paw and strikes the ground and pulls back his claws. He does this several times. And the dragon, Eustace, is filled with pain and he drops to the ground. And he's transformed back into a boy. And then when they're on a small boat sailing back to the treader, the Pevensies say, what was it like, Eustace? What was it like when Aslan changed you? And he said, it hurt, but it was a good hurt. That's what happens when we encounter the holiness, grace of God, the forgiveness of God. A great preacher once said, only fire can dwell with fire. Take a piece of iron or steel and place it in the fire and it will absorb the heat and begin to glow with incandescent brightness. I think the author of this statement is right. We don't become like God by doing for God, which is something that's so often taught in church. We become like God by being with him through grace. Beholding is becoming. Second Corinthians 3 the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. God has removed the veil of sin, allowing us to look upon Jesus. And the more we're with him, the more we become like him. To be cleansed, we must confess. And then by God's grace, we must forsake sin. But I believe that must happen, not just because it's dangerous and deadly, which it is, but because we have found in Christ a pleasure that far surpasses what those counterfeit kings could offer us. And when we dwell with God, we'll begin to burn for his glory. And this is happening now to Isaiah. And now he hears the commission in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So only when he is cleansed did he hear the call of the Lord. He's now prepared for God's work. His guilt is taken away. He knows who God is. He knows who he is. He knows mercy and grace and God now calls him into service. Now, our commission is similar in that we are called to declare the word of the Lord, but I want you to notice something. The results that we can expect are quite different than the results that Isaiah was told he could expect. You don't have to do it now, 
But if you get a chance to read on, what you'll discover is Isaiah was being called to a stiff-necked, stubborn people whose ears would be stopped from hearing the gospel and their eyes would be blinded. So imagine Jesus calling you into ministry and saying, by the way, nothing is going to happen. No fruit, no visible manifest fruit. You just have to declare my word. That was Isaiah's commission. Ours is quite different. Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. According to this passage and many others, God is on a mission to establish a witness of Jesus among every nation, tribe, and tongue and it's gonna happen. Not might happen, it will happen. It will be preached as a witness to all the nations. This passage says there's going to be a viable, growing, reproducing witness of Jesus Christ, a worshiping witness among every nation, tribe, and tongue, which means we can embrace our commission with a great sense of expectation. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's going to be setbacks. Not all will be saved. There will even be casualties. But we know that we are involved in something where fruit will manifest. And if you look at the book of Revelation, you see the heavenly throne room and around the throne of the Lamb are worshipers from all nations, tribes, and tongues. So when you labor with God in discipling the nations, you're laboring for something that cannot fail. Now, Isaiah's mission wasn't going to fail because it's never in vain that we preach God's word. However, he was told there'd be no fruit. And yet he was consumed because he had beheld the holiness of Christ. And that brings us to our final point, verse eight. His response to this invitation, here am I, send me. He had beheld the glory of the Lord. He knew about his sinful condition for the first time. He knew that it would be fitting for God to destroy him. And yet God extends mercy and grace. He removes guilt and he's now invited into the purposes of God. And he says, me. As we behold the majesty of Christ in the means of grace that he's granted us, the word, the communion table, worship, prayer, fellowship, as we experience him, him through these means of grace and we see him, we too should find it irresistible to tell the world how great he is. His love should compel us. what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14 the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all then all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again there's a parallel situation here with Paul and Isaiah Paul was God's man Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law like nobody else, but he did not know the character of the uncreated Christ. He has a crisis of encounter. What happens? He's dropped to his fanny, blinded by the holiness of Jesus. 
He's aware of what he's done. In vain, he's been serving God. God extends mercy and grace. Does not hold Paul's sins to his account, but to Christ's account. And now he says this here, I'm compelled. I have no choice. It literally means it leaves me with no choice. In other words, I can't help myself. He doesn't embrace ministry begrudgingly. It is my prayer that this message will inspire all of us, and again, us includes me, to deepen our involvement in this great purpose of God of declaring his glory among every nation, tribe, and tongue. For us specifically, that means the Achi. That means North Africa. It means your friends and neighbors here who do not know him. But I pray that this happens because he has ignited in us a fire to know him. Don't misunderstand me. We must go, the world is waiting. But first, we have to burn. Worship must be the fuel of mission's flame or the light will flicker and go out. John Stott, I'm gonna close here with a quote from this great theologian who is now in the presence of Christ, at least his spirit is until the resurrection when his body will be resurrected as well. But for now, we know he's worshiping because to be absent in the body is to be present. But these were some of his words that he wrote before he died. And they say it's a good exercise when you do a sermon to try and summarize it to two or three sentences. What is the main thing you're trying to convey, the theological truth that you want understood? And if I had to frame the message I just taught, it would be Stott's words. He says, we do not speak for Christ because we do not so love his name that we cannot bear to see him unacknowledged and unadored. If only our eyes were open to see his glory. And if only we felt wounded by the shame of his public humiliation among men, we should not be able to remain silent. Rather, we would echo the apostles' words. We cannot but speak of what we have seen, 